Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything, even the most unexpected of subjects, has a history. Like plums, dogs and honesty. Oh, oh I love the topic honesty. Uh, or drains, rains and stains. I think stains would be a brilliant topic to do. Or planes, yeah. remains and disdains. I think we should, do, however, do um, poison curtains, wallpaper or... Importantly for today, because it is Super Thursday in the United Kingdom, or we've just had Super Thursday, uh, failure, failure um, in the elections. Um, yes. Utter failures. I, th- I'm, I think failure is beckoning us. However, this is to digress, as always, in a utterly monstrous way, because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? I bet you didn't know this. Who knew? that the history of rhyming is in fact all about the singing game, the transmission of dance songs across the centuries to children's playgrounds. It's about Renaissance verse, Petrarchan sonnets, the court of Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, World War I, Edward Lear and nonsense limericks, and professional writing for a living. Or who knew that the history of grandparents, which is one of my favourite recent episodes, is in fact all about oral history, World War II and sociability during lockdown. It's about 20th century New Zealand memory and identity. It's about National Grandparents Day. It's about the 17th century Englishwoman Elizabeth Freak and the tragic death of her grandson. Remember that? Shot through the head with a gun by accident. It's about monarchs' grandparents. It's about Chinese relatives. It's also about my great, 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 grandparents and the Norman Conquest, which you very kindly did some research on. Who knew, Sam Willis? Who knew? Yeah, it was it was fascinating, wasn't it? It was really, really good. Uh, you're all probably wondering who is doing this speaking. Let me introduce him. The man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing. Uh, let me say that if history itself was suffering from anxiety, this man would diagnose the tense muscles, the irritability, the compulsive worrying, fatigue, the inability to concentrate and the agitation. No symptom would pass him by, for he is the very medic of history itself, the man who has taken the Hippocratic Oath for one patient alone, the past. He is Professor <laughs> Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University, Professor James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. You get better and better at these. That was that was <laughs> tremendous. Uh, and the man not sitting opposite me, because as Sam has said, uh, and I've given it away, we're social distancing in these grim, grim days of lockdown, although that may change very soon. Well, let's just say if he were an anxiety related historian, he'd only be an Edward Gibbon type historian. He of decline and fall of the Roman Empire fame, anxious that he is for the search of historical truths and accuracy, concerned that he is to demonstrate sufficient mastery over his sources, fearful lest he not have total and utter control over the magnificence of his prose style, cautious that he did not cater for the historical (laughs) passions of his public and times. This is, of course, entire fantasy. I haven't a clue whether or not Gibbon was anxious about any of this or not. However, you've guessed it, it's the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. I think Gibbon was very anxious about all of those things. Um, Hello, everyone. Oh, what an amazing introduction, as ever. We're doing anxiety. 
uh, the uh, history of anxiety. Uh, possibly one of my ideas, but I think we both... Have, I think it was one of your ideas, and I was one of the rather stumped as to what to do. Um, but then uh, then I, I passed that moment, uh, sat down for a few minutes, and then everything was just came flooding in. I had all sorts yeah. of things about anxiety. Yeah, there, there, there are really a huge uh, amount of different ways that you can think about it. Um, do you get anxious about recording these episodes, James? Never. No. I used to when we no. first started, um, but you, yep. you cured me of that very, very quickly <laughs> on the first on the first episode. I walked in with a with a wad full of notes, uh, like a script, and I think you took it from me tore it up and put it in the bin and you said you know you don't need a comfort blanket James uh, <laughs> you'll be much better if you're unscripted and so ever you know I think we've done about 250 of those so anxiety is not something that I that I fear um it's not something I feel about performing um in general uh, it's something that I I used to as a as a younger daybell um but something that I trained myself not to worry about Good stuff. Um, so, anxiety in history. Um, do you want to have a what? How? How? What? What's first came into your mind? Do you know? I, I was thinking about how I was thinking about all the sort of all the history that I've studied and read and everything. So, it's one of the things that I do when I start thinking about these and things sort of pop to the surface. Um, and so, a couple of things that came to mind. One was about anxious masculinity in the 16th and 17th century so this this idea that men at the time established patriarchy in various forms this is to woefully simplify it but they established a sort of patriarchal structure that subordinated women because they were fearful of what they saw as women's uh, sort of um, sexual aggressiveness um, and so it was sort of it was anxiety about about that uh, that led to men setting up uh, society in that way. And I also thought about um, separation anxiety and I thought about the, you know, the theories around separation anxiety. So when young babies and young children um, are suddenly separated over, a not suddenly, but they're separated from from mothers. Uh, this is something that, you know, has a profound sort of psychological history in that there is a very detailed literature about it from sort of Freud onwards um, and that this has a, an application uh, to in 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 the past you know and one can look at the examples of where children and mothers are, are separated in historical reality but I was also thinking about it in terms of in terms of in terms of the sort of feelings of anxiety and the treatments of anxiety so these these feelings of unease these worries these fears that can you know be be extremely serious or quite mild you know just sort of nerves and butterflies before a sort of job interview or something like that that are perfectly normal versus something that actually is a is a pretty severe medical condition so with sort of with with panic attacks and phobias and and post-traumatic stress disorder and social anxiety disorder, all of those kinds of things that, you know, that, that uh, modern medicine uh, would, would treat. So you could have a look at, you could have a look at that and, and the way in which over time uh, the medical profession has diagnosed and treated those and how they've been sort of dealt with culturally. You could also think about the kinds of historical situations that caused anxiety 
So people being fearful of war, people, you know, going away from family and friends and being isolated, all of those kinds of things, people being imprisoned and, and, and tortured, you know. So so we could think about it from all of those um, points of view. And I read a fascinating uh, book this week, uh, which I highly recommend to everyone. It's a book on medical history. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful volume uh, with Manchester University Press by a, a scholar called Alana Tompkins called Medical Misadventure in an Age of Professionalisation, 1780 to 1890. And basically what it looks at, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this, is about the medical profession not being professionals, but it's those people who are unprofessionals. Um, who failed in their career. So it's almost like a sort of, you know, a, a study in failure. And and I think part of it is about there is a there's a chapter that looks at that looks at doctors from the period who went to work in India. And that was a, a cause of anxiety. Many of them did not want to go. So it was separating them from families. You know, they felt that in some ways they'd failed. They were very anxious about the situation that they were going to. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about that in a sort of historical, geographical situation. Hmm. Where do you go with anxiety, very good. Sam? Uh, well, I was trying to think about how I have come across it in my research. And I it made me realise that I've tended to study dramatic events right in the past one way or another and one of the key things that I've always uh, had to bear in mind or, or really wanted to make make apparent is that no one no one knew what the event was going to how it was going to end up there's a whole kind of process of events unfolding which you need to be alert to as a historian and actually that the um, us in in the future as it were we know what's actually going to happen and it's really important to maintain this sense of uncertainty when um, uh, using a narrative to describe the past. And it's something that I came across a lot when I particularly found a big collection of uh, letters written in the immediate aftermath of naval battles, which were collected in the British Museum. And what was interesting about them was the different ways in which the people who were describing the events physically did it. So some were very calm um, and were clearly wordsmiths and had chosen the time to um, carefully select not only what they were going to say, but how they were going to say it. Others very panicky, lots of crossings out, lots of uh, insertions of words in between lines, whole sections deleted, um, water sort of poured onto the uh, onto the letters, um, and it made me realise that there were people here under great duress who were exceptionally concerned about what they were writing down. Is that kind of a really important point here? And it's that they they knew that they would be hugely judged on what they wrote, and actually what they wrote was fundamentally more important than what actually happened uh and then when as a historian you realize that um you realize the the real split in between actual events what happened and the description of events and how people wanted them to seem to have occurred and there was a great deal of anxiety there um 
And that made me wonder, so just the kind of the physical side of it, James, I'm basically turning into you. This is the kind of the material culture of the letter. It's basically what oh, you do oh, for your entire career. Um, but the way that that kind of anxiety manifested itself. So it's not just about uh, about the words, it's how they're written down. It's the kind of thing you simply don't get if you read a modern transcription, which is why all good budding historians have to go to the archives and look at the way things were written down. And so I thought about, OK, let's let's think about, uh, the, you know, what's the most famous example of this? And I think one of the most famous examples of it is Elizabeth I's Tide Letter, which I suspect you know a great deal about. Yes. Um, so I was just wanted to talk very briefly about that because it's um, it's beautiful. It's written at a moment of extreme anxiety. And there is uh, the, the, the point I wanted to end with was the one I began with about how that can manifest itself in the way that letters are physically written. So this is a letter. It's written in 1554 by Elizabeth. She's not queen at the time. She's Princess Elizabeth. Um, her half-sister, Mary, is is queen. And Mary is concerned that Elizabeth has had something to do with something called the Wyatt Rebellion. This is a rebellion um, led by Thomas Wyatt. He's a politician. And there's concern that Mary's... Uh, Mary's marriage uh, with Philip of Spain. Anyway, White's rebellion all goes wrong. He's captured. Um, and interestingly, he, he's put in the tower, but his sentence is delayed. So th- there was some kind of, uh, of of hope that blame could be attached to Elizabeth. Elizabeth hears that she's going to be taken to the tower. And then she sits down and writes a letter and she deliberately delays the letter and she she takes ages writing it to allow the the tide to rise or at least this is the story it may not be true to allow the tide to rise so that the boats can't pass underneath the london bridges and take her to the tower she essentially buys herself some time and it's it's successful she does buy herself a bit more time uh, the text is wonderful because it's um it's a, it is a this is a this is a princess who went on to become such a a confident and fascinating monarch who is at one stage in her life uh, begging, uh, begging her her half sister for her life. Obviously, bear in mind that Elizabeth's mother Anne Boleyn had been executed by her father Henry VIII. Um, so a bit of the text here, but and then we'll talk about uh, how she finishes off the letter. If any ever did try this old saying that a king's word was more than another man's oath, I most humbly beseech your majesty to verify it in me and to remember your last promise and my last demand that I be not condemned without answer and due process, which it seems that now I am. I neither practised, consiled, nor consented to anything that might be prejudicial to your person any way or dangerous to the state by any means. And therefore I humbly beseech your majesty to let me answer afore yourself and not suffer me to trust your counsellors, yea, and that afore I go to the tower, if it be possible, if not afore I be further condemned, howbeit I trust assuredly your highness will give me leave to do it afore I go, for that as shamefully I may not be cried out on as now I shall be, yea, and without cause. Also I most humbly beseech your highness to pardon this my boldness, which innocency procures me to do together with hope of your natural kindness, which I trust will not see me cast away without desert, which what it is I would desire no more of God." but that you truly knew. Though these persons are not to be compared to your majesty, yet I pray God that evil persuasions persuade not one sister against the other and all for that they have heard false report and not hearkened to the truth. 
And then she carries, she finishes off saying, I humbly crave but only one word of answer from yourself, your highness, most faithful subject that hath been from the beginning and will be to my end, Elizabeth. And then most importantly of all, she in this letter, she um, there's a huge bit of blank space before she signs at the bottom and she's filled it in with diagonal sweeping lines because she's concerned that someone might get hold of this letter and might alter it or might add some more uh, lines, some more information which would not have come from her hand. So it's a, it's a fascinating document of anxiety. She's desperately worried about it being changed and she's desperately worried that her half-sister is going to condemn her to death. I've taught you well, Grasshopper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Finally. Those, those, those diagonal lines are technically called hatchings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see them on quite a few letters where, where you, don't want the, you don't want somebody to basically get hold of your letter and then <laughs> write in the blanks. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a superb letter, isn't it? Really superb. Absolutely. And yeah. and autograph and and what's uh, if you're interested in seeing this, you can see the example of it on the National Archives website. Just type in National Archives and Tide Letter and Princess Elizabeth, and it comes up. And what's interesting about the letter is that it is the crossings out throughout it. So you know, it's actually something that she seems to have been quite studied about and has you know has taken great care with it. Um, it's not a sort of presentation letter in the sense of something that's been written out. So one one gets the sense that, you know, that part of its composition is is happening while it's being while she, while she's writing it. So it's not something she's done in draft and then, you know, and then and then, you know, copied out in presentation script, which I think, again, reinforces the anxiety probably of the letter. Um, so, yes. Excellent. Well done, sir. Well done. Thank you. Uh, I shall talk about 18th century navy now. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Very good. I, 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 I am, of course, joking. I'm going to talk about separation anxiety, and and uh, as part of my reading for this week, I was reading the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry, uh, Volume One, um, and an excellent um, little piece uh, by John Bowlby uh, from the Tavistock Clinic in London. And it's a piece called Separation Anxiety, a Critical Review of the Literature. And what he what he basically looks at here is the literature that underpins psychoanalytic theory about the concept of anxiety. And for him, anxiety is is in three sort of different it's in three different stages. So there's the there's the stage of of sort of protest which raises the problem of separation anxiety. So we're talking here about a child between about one and four and the kind of you know response, that psychological response they have from being taken away from their, their mother in particular. So the first stage then is this, is this sort of stage of protest, which is this problem of, of separation anxiety. There's then a period of despair, so which is characterised by grief or mourning. In other words, it's the physical manifestation of that, the separation from the mother and then there is a final stage which is detachment so it's it's basically where the child becomes detached from the mother and in some ways sort of more independent and psychologically this is seen as a as a form of of defense and many of the great thinkers um 
and psychoanalysts, you know, Freud among others, have have thought about this, um, have thought about this and sketched out all sorts of ideas about this. I don't want to spend too much time or, or any more time wading through the sort of psychological theory about this. Um, what I'm more interested in is looking at this in a historical context. And in the past, we have looked at the foundling hospital. So this 18th century hospital that was set up in London um, to cater for um, mothers who, unmarried mothers largely, or, or very, very poor women who, who couldn't afford to look after uh, a child. And so they gave the child to be brought up uh, in the in the hospital. And we've talked in the past about the various sort of tokens that were attached to the child um, that became part of their documents that meant that if a mother uh, wanted the child back at a later stage, she'd be able to sort of, you know, produce the piece of clothing and, and, and match up. What I'm interested in here, though, is the experience of that separation, that anxiety that is manifest by the separation of, of mother uh, and child. And I, I was reading a really lovely article by a scholar called Jessica A. Sheets Nguyen, uh, if that's how you pronounce the surname. Sheets is S-H-E-E-T-Z uh, uh, hyphen capital N-G-U-Y-E-N. Somebody can correct me on my pronunciation, um, but it's, it's, um, it's entitled... Dear Mr. Brownlow, will you please tell me, Victorian women, unwed mothers and the London Foundling Hospital. Uh, and it's in a, a collection uh, called Cultural, Bloomsbury Cultural History. I think you can find it on the, find it on the uh, interweb. Uh, it's a really good, um, a really good um, read. And it starts by, with, with uh, a discussion of, of Charles Dickens. Um, and in particular, Dickens is somebody who's very sort of, you know, very deeply connected to the Foundling Hospital. It features in 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 some of his works, and it starts with a a fictionalised account in a work called No Thoroughfare, and I'll just read you that that extract. Well, one day we took Pet to church there to hear the music because, as practical people, it is the business of our lives to show her everything that we can to please her mother. My usual name for Mrs. Meagles began to cry so that it was necessary to take her out. What's the matter, mother? When I saw all those children ranged tier above tier and appealing from the father, none of them has ever known on earth to the great father of us all in heaven. I thought, does any wretched mother ever come here and look among those young faces, wondering which is the poor child she brought into this forlorn world? never through all its life to know her love, her kiss, her face, her voice, even her name. Now that was practical in mother, and I told her so. So it's, 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 it's taking this idea, it's exploring this idea of how a mother giving up her child might feel about that what kind of social what kind of sort of emotional anxieties does she does she feel um and we're actually able to capture this by looking at a collection of petitionary letters that mothers send to the hospital talking about their their children asking after them you know wanting to know whether they are alive or not you know and 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 really sort of pitiful and anxious 
uh, about them and sort of often, you know, very sorry that they that they've had to give them up, but actually wanting that sort of close bond. It's, it's an extraordinary range of of letters, and the chapter is based on about three hundred and fifty six such letters. There's a really interesting discussion in it about about the literacy of these these poor women uh, during this sort of it's the middle of the 19th century through to the end of the 19th century so the period 1842 to 92 um, and so it, it enables you to to look at signing literacy among these women about 88 percent of them signed their names but what's actually more interesting than that is actually looking at the kinds of things that they're writing in their letters and i just want to read you a couple of a couple of extracts this is from a, uh, a a woman called sarah t she signs herself i beg to acknowledge the receipt of your letter the 7th of june i am truly grieved and pained to hear of the death of my dear little girl but in the midst of my grief i'm consoled that that dear little spirit is happy forever it has pleased God to take her to himself, and she is now spared from all her troubles and trials of this life. I do feel it very much, but I shouldn't ought to sorrow over it, since I was deprived of her presence. I can rest assured that she is now with Jesus. She has a new and happy home. I trust it will be the reason of often leading my thoughts to heaven, where I know I have one so near and dear to me. I hope God is working all these trials together, affording everlasting good with many thanks, sir, for all your kindness and attention to my dear little girl. I remain, sir, your obedient servant, Sarah T. Now here's another one written by Hannah D. Just a line from Hannah D to let her know her dear child is going on her name is Jessie May Margaret D, who entered the hospital July the 14th. Her private letter is K. Hannah D. will feel very much obliged to you, sir, for a reply. Your obedient servant, Hannah D. And I'll read you just what one more. Harriet M., a young woman whose child was admitted into the Foundling Hospital, I think at the beginning of November of this year, is very anxious to know whether her child is well or no. If it is not contrary to rule, would you kindly send me only one line in the enclosed envelope? stating how the child is i confess i feel many scruples is thus troubling you but i'm aware the young woman is very anxious to receive some tidings and i checked a friend making a similar application on her behalf two weeks ago since thinking it unreasonable that the inquiry should be made so shortly after the child had been admitted so i think what we have here in these letters is a profound expression of separation anxiety on behalf of these mothers and this is a this is a, a a feeling that mothers around the world at different times would have felt from being separated from their children and think about all the circumstances that would force mothers to be separated from young children think only of the second world war and the evacuees having to move out of the cities that were being bombed into the countryside think of around the world the children who were ripped from parents because of government uh, policy you think about the lost generations in 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 um in in 
in, in Australia, the Aboriginal, the stolen generations, those children that were taken from their parents or Native Americans, children that were taken from their parents and brought up um, in a, to, to be sort of truly American in a sense. Um, or, or, or more ubiquitously, you know, think about those those children who are actually taken into care because their parents can't look can't look after them we often we often think about that from a child's perspective and from the protective sort of custody that they need but also what about from the the parental perspective of having those children you know taken from them so there we are uh, anxieties to do with separation sam very good very good i hugely enjoyed that the um i wasn't quite sure where else i could go with this i get, i got a couple of other options um uh I thought about the Doomsday Book, which is something we did. We did a episode on that for our homeschooling series on the history of names, which was rather good. But it's amazing if you, how many kind of significant events you can actually interpret through the lens of anxiety. So the Doomsday Book, you, he's basically, uh, William is, is trying to find out who owns what land. But the kind of broader context of that is that there's a it's 20 years after the Norman Conquest. So it happens in 1086. And in 1060, uh, obviously uh, invaded in 1066, so 20 years after. And there's been a great deal of land grabbing and uncertainty over who actually owns what. He's he's trying desperately to ensure the um, loyalty of his followers by giving out land. So he's worried about that. He's worried about his own people turning against him. He's also worried that... Um, the land holdings have not been passed over properly. He's also worried about being invaded by Knut the Fourth of Denmark, and he actually needs to know about what resources he can command. Um, so that was one idea. Well, you know, that's certainly certainly something you can talk about. And the Magna Carta, it's another one, another significant historical document, and that's all to do with fears, anxieties uh, from a, or actually, what it ends up being a very narrow, um, narrow elite, but still anxieties over the powers of the king. So I considered those two, but then I decided I was actually going to look at one of my favourite periods, the Cold War. Um, again, it's something we have done, talked about briefly, but what I wanted to do was to just illustrate the kind of extremes of anxiety, what was going on here, why it was called the Cold War, uh, the, the, the uncertainty about what was going on with, uh, with Russia. But more than that, it, it is really quite complicated and layered and there are many sources of anxiety that or many reasons that Americans were feeling anxious um, about their future and this is obviously in the aftermath of the second world war first they worry about the economy um, many of the unemployed had taken jobs in war industries or as soldiers and when the war's over they fear that they're going to lose their jobs so actually now the war has gone there's a great deal of uncertainty about what people are going to do they're concerned that the depression is going to come back as well they're also very concerned that not only is there um, going to be unemployment, but also really, really bad inflation. And they've they've experienced this before. Don't forget that. They're, they're concerned about history repeating itself and the horrors of the Depression. Um, one of the, the key concerns about inflation is that supply is low because so many factories have been producing war materials um, during those war years. And it takes them a, a certain amount of time to go back to producing the consumer goods that they were originally intended for. So although there's a, there's a great deal of demand, everyone wants to go back to normal. It's a bit like now, you know, the lockdown's ended, everyone wants to get back to normal. Um, it's not 
actually as simple as that. And the relatively low supply of goods means people are very concerned that prices are going to absolutely shoot up through the roof much higher than any kind of inflation which would affect their wages. They're obviously also very concerned about about the Russians. Um, This is interesting because Initially, they're actually painted. You've got to remember that America and the Russians were actually allies in defeating Germany. So this change in the 50s is really concerning. But you need to see it in the context that initially um, the Americans had painted the Russians in a very positive light. Roosevelt particularly had always been going on about about his trust in Stalin and how important it was for the Soviets to remain allies with the US. So that that narrative changes dramatically after the war. And then there are rumours of um, the behaviour of the Russians once they, uh, when they invade Germany. Um, There's great deal of concern in political circles about what the Russians are actually doing. The Russians say they're just preparing to arm and defend themselves in case Germany invades them again. But um, the political leaders think there's much more going on here. So you've got the, the sort of the public story of brutality allied with great deal of political concern. This is a period when Churchill starts referring to the Iron Curtain. Um, it's that kind of rhetoric which really gets people's back up. You're pitting uh, the East against the West. Also, you've got to bear in mind what's happening with nuclear bombs as well. So um, the atomic bombs which had been dropped on Japan at the end of 1944-45 were not initially a source of anxiety. But then that that changes because the Americans realise that actually the Russians are much further along in the development of their own bomb. And they then do have their own bomb in 1949. Not only do they have their own bomb, but the Americans realise it. It is almost an exact replica of the American bomb. So that's yet another source of anxiety. So not only do they have the bomb, it's like, how on earth did they get the bomb? And how did they get one which is almost exactly like ours? Um, and so that raises up this, this huge concern, not only about uh, what uh, communist intentions and behaviour is, but also uh, about the security, the internal security of America itself. This all gets even more complicated in 57 when the Soviets launch uh, Sputnik, their first satellite into orbit. The concern here is, well, if you've got a, a rocket so powerful you can you can catapult a satellite beyond the Earth's gravitational pull, then uh, making one that's going to be powerful enough to land on the American mainland cannot be too far away. Those concerns were actually unfounded. They couldn't do that. But then you have the whole Cuban missile crisis. What are the Russians going to find and use as a base for their missiles? So I just wanted to kind of just explain how many concerns there were in American society in the 50s. Um, And interestingly, historians have looked at this one way and they were trying to measure how anxiety can be experienced in a population as a historian. How can you prove it there? And one way of doing that is looking at tranquilizer and alcohol use. And the figures show that these spike massively during the 1950s, where everyone is is self-medicating, James. And I think in a way that everyone was here during lockdown as well. I was thinking that too. Excellent, Sam. Very good. <laughs> Very relevant. Now, just to, um, to end, I want to sort of have a little discussion of... Um, 
medical professionals um, in the period 1780 to 1890, which I talked a little bit about earlier on. And this book by Alana Tompkins with Manchester University Press called Medical Misadventure in an Age of Professionalism, 1780 to 1890. And I thought this was a terrific book. Um, I think it's, you know, if you're interested in your medical history, a lot of medical history... Um, looks at the profession and the sort of building of the of the medical profession and the training of them in the from the 17th century onwards and and what this does is it gives a really nice corrective rather than looking at this construction of professionalism it actually looks at the impediments to that so it looks at failure it looks at neglect it looks at you know people who just don't do particularly well um it um and it, it's got some really um, insightful chapters. There are chapters on financial hardship, disappointed careers, neglect, causing harm, lunacy, stress, suicides, so all sorts of things that you can think about in terms of anxiety. And one of the chapters that really caught my attention was this chapter on the medics that went out with the East India Company. So they are the the in they're part of the Indian Medical Service. So rather than setting up in professional practice in Britain, um, they went uh, went to India. And this was something that caused pretty acute anxiety in all of these people. And part of this was that they they didn't want to go. That they simply didn't want to go to the other side of the world. They were fearful that they would die overseas without coming home. They fearful that they'd be, you know, separate from from family. And this was actually a, a real sort of point of of regret or distress. So actually leaving Britain was a point of, was a real wrench for them. Um, they were also feared that their careers wouldn't do particularly well. They didn't know what life was going to be like in India. I mean, many of them who, you know, who went over there actually fitted in quite well. And, and there was a sort of a really sort of, you know, active social scene that catered for people. Um, but they thought that their careers would, would, would stagnate, that they'd be away from powerful patrons and family connections uh, in Britain. Um, so there's a real sort of sense of professional concern about this um, there's also a sense of disappointment that they've basically not succeeded so an anxiety that you know basically they won't they won't they they can't succeed in Britain and have to go abroad for it and also there's a real sort of sense of isolation you know whether whether imagined or or real because they are you know they're they're very distant from home they're very separated um and here we come back to correspondence you know but tying back with your sort of materiality of correspondence actually the 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 sort of exchange of correspondence was a way of of keeping them united with family while they were separated like this and margot finn talks about letters being a way of of tying together absent family members uh, who were who were in uh, India um, and, and a way of connecting them to their British family. But still, the problem is actually getting correspondence backwards and forwards, the amount of time that it took to, you know, for, for you know, the mail service to, to sort of work was actually a, a real problem. So we're seeing here 
you know, all the kinds of things that actually lead to anxiety. It reminds me of that book that we read on or that we read on boredom for the chapter on boredom, where basically what you're looking at is a load of of individuals in the 19th century who go out and work in the in the empire and are and are bored. But actually what this does is look at it from the point of view of anxiety and those kind of and the way in which it sort of makes them feel, you know, pretty rotten. The book this chapter is based on all sorts of ego documents, so family collections of family correspondence, but also journals. And you can see from that, you know, precisely how miserable uh, people are feeling about it. And I just want to read you a, a couple of a couple of extracts here. There's a guy called William Dickon. Uh, who's writing home and he's he's sailing um, from Madeira and he reflects um, two years ago this very day I was as happy as I ever was and more so perhaps than I shall ever be again if any person had told me that instead of my now being in dear old England I should be thousands of miles from it I would not have believed them and then he, he writes he write, writes later um, there's a bit where he he gets a sort of an, an Indian newspaper uh, comes to him um, anticipating the resignation of lots of medical officers and he, he reports um, for he must indeed be possessed of a most glowing enthusiasm and an utter contempt for self-interest who can bury his talents and industry in a situation where obscurity poverty and neglect spread all their miseries before him this was an opinion that he you know that that he shared so this idea of complete you know disappointment and anxiety of a sort of failed career um he then writes um i have never felt so miserable since i left england as i do tonight it seems hard to have left home and all that is near and dear to me for the paltry sum of a hundred and eighty pounds everybody save myself seems happy all have their friends coming off to welcome and take them on shore what a miserable man <laughs> i am afraid i put you into low spirits for those earliest letters painting my situation in so deplorable a light deary me so there we are anxiety with being abroad and separated from family sam very good. I, I really enjoyed that, actually. Amazing. That's perfect proof of how histories of the unexpected is a brilliant way of looking at history. Exactly. It always uh, is, Sam. It is. Uh, guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Oh, and I'm loving the animations that you've been doing for that, Sam. They're spectacular. So people Latest should check that out as well. Latest one on a submarine, yeah. Latest yeah. one on a submarine. Really, really good. Brilliant, brilliant. And you can follow me on Twitter at James Nabel. You can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram. We're on Facebook. So check us out there. And we also have an all singing, all dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. We also have a Patreon page. Uh, should you have deep pockets or even shallow pockets, uh, whatever you can spare to help us with our endeavour to spread the word of history uh, would be very much appreciated. But for now, goodbye, stay well, and we'll be back with failure or wallpaper or some such intriguing, unexpected topic very soon. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye, guys. Bye.